Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Such a nice big crowd. Uh, most importantly, thank you, Ana Maria, for being with us thank this evening. Thank you for evening. having me. We appreciate it. On the drive over, I was actually, I was thinking about, I will try to do this in a way that doesn't embarrass you. Um, I, I was actually, <laughs> well, I was thinking about, you're a little bit unusual in the pantheon of, of LA Opera in that you, you've had a, you've had a, a relationship with this company that, that goes back over two decades. You made your debut with us uh, 21 years ago, amazingly. Um, Thank you, Miss Clairol. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you and, and you came to us right, right after right after you won Operelia. You you made your debut with us as as Mimi and La Boheme. And then I thought, actually, this long relationship with Ellie Opera is isn't anomalous. It is actually in a way, a, a defining characteristic of your career. Because you have this decades-long relationship with Houston Grand Opera. You have this decades-long relationship with Lyric Opera Chicago. You're a regular guest at the San Francisco Opera and at the Metropolitan Opera. So there you have the five largest companies in America. And then you have this incredibly uh, vibrant um, career in Europe as well. But but I wondered, what, what does it mean? Because that that is, in fact, very unusual. Uh, Don Carlo is your seventh role with us. Elgato Montez, um, which Lisa mentioned, will be your your eighth. What does it mean to an artist, and specifically you, to have a long relationship with a theater? And how much control do you have over that? And is is that fulfilling? Is that something you dreamed about? Is that is that particularly gratifying, or just just a kind of uh, coincidence? Or I think it's a great question. Um, we live in a time where everything is is so instant, and we are. You know, I, I was telling Christopher, I feel like a millennial. You know, I've got my cell phone attached to me. Um, in your I, defense, we both have it. Yeah. Well, you have it. You have it to look at the time. Yeah. No, but it it, it just. And I trust. Trust me, I'm not looking at my phone. But it's just. It's always with. Me. Anyway, the the point is that we're living in a time where everything is is um, very fast pace, almost a revolving door of life experiences, much much faster than even when I was growing up. But at the same time, when I was growing up, in my my own personal case, I always felt like a late bloomer. Part of that is that, um, believe it or not, my nature is quite shy and introverted. I think I have the temperament to be a writer and a painter, not necessarily in front of people. But that quickly changed when I realized I could probably sing better than I could do anything else. And I think that it's important to feel a sense of purpose. And I thought, well, if I could do this well, let me dedicate myself to this and let me train really hard for this. And acknowledging that I'm a late bloomer, it, it always took me a long time to get out of my shell. Part of what helped is realizing it's not about me. It's about telling a story. It's about service. It's about being an instrument. And that, in a way, allows you to just step back a little bit. And it's not, you know, where's the spotlight, but rather what are the inner quests of, of the character that, that I'm portraying in this moment, which I hope everyone can identify with. So it, it, it's not just me identifying with the character, it's everybody that's, that witnesses the character. So that, 
I always thought, since I'm a late bloomer, hopefully by the time I'm X age, then I'll be ready or then I can graduate to this. So part of what's helped the longevity is choosing roles very carefully. And even though I might have had the color of sound to, to sing certain roles, I didn't take them on until I felt that I was truly ready to do that. So I hoped for that. I didn't know that that's how it would end up. And I realized that today it's not the norm, but it used to be during the time of my mother's generation, she was a singer. And so I always learned from her, sing as young as you can, as long as you can. And that's the advice I love to give young singers. Just because you can sing Turandot today at 29 doesn't mean you should. So take on Donna Anna in Don Giovanni. Make sure that you have that Mozart and that, that tessitura where Donna Anna sits is going to be similar to the tessitura where Turandot has to sit. But it's two very different demands. And I say you want to grow there so that by the time you get there, you can shade it however you like. A composer gives us the canvas and a few points, but we're expected to take the paintbrush and fill the whole canvas. And you can't do that unless you have the maturity, emotionally speaking, physically, vocally. Um, so I'm very grateful to, to have that type of longevity and the relationship with LA Opera, with Houston, where I started, with Chicago, with, with San Francisco, the Met, and, and European houses as well, because it's very much uh, uh, similar to chemistry with people, with, with the friendships that evolve through time, and you get to know the house and the people that work in that particular opera house day in and day out, and the audiences. You build these relationships and these connections, and all of that, the audience might really enjoy it, but the artist is the one that truly grows. So we are allowed as artists to have multiple lifetimes in a way with the different roles that we incarnate and, and, and the relationships with the companies. So, so given all the pressures that you talked about, um, how do you exert control over your career with managers and houses asking you to, to do certain things? How have you been able to, to exert that kind of control and say, no, I'm not going to sing Turandot? Mm. Well, Which, in all, my defense, we have not asked. No, and no one has, and no one will. No, 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 no. Maybe Liu, which I've done, but no, not Turandot. No, but I'm thinking of dramatic voices when they know they're dramatic early on. It's like, no, wait, wait, wait. Um, so I have had a few, not many, but a few managers throughout my career. And there were some, like in, in the case of some voice teachers, where you feel you've grown the maximum that you can within that dynamic and that relationship, and then it's important for both parties to move on. And I think it's important to do that with respect to each other, because you're both dedicated to the art form from different uh, perspectives. Um, I've always been very cautious in the roles. So I'll give you an example. Early on, I would say more or less at the time that I debuted here, I was offered Butterfly. So I'm talking 1997, uh, 96, 97, and Tosca. And then my answer was, do you expect me to, I mean, if I do that at that time, if I had done that, my vocal cords would have been right there, you know? <laughs> I, they would have come out with blood. You know? So I said, no, 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 there's no way. I think one, one important thing to keep in mind, and I learned this from Marta Domingo. She has mentored me as much as Placido has. Her advice is priceless. She said, be very wise with the roles you choose because to get up in front of an audience and to, to interpret a role is already psychologically demanding. You have to feel as though you can perch on the role that you are 
taking on and that you can do it with great ease and joy. The moment you feel that you're literally trying to, to grab at straws and reaching for dear life, whether it's vocally, technically, uh, interpretively, then you have really canceled your chances for joy and success in that particular role and experience. And I would always just consult with my, my conscience. In Spanish, we say, consult with your pillow. You know, that's your conscience. Um, and, I, and I would say, let me sleep on it and, and just uh, see how, how I think I can and, and can't do it. And many times I've said no to things that were wonderful opportunities. I remember Giuseppe Sinopoli, may he rest in peace. He wanted me to do Don Carlo back in 2000. I said, absolutely not. And my first one was two years ago. And the same thing with Butterfly came about 17 years into my career. And even then, I was terrified. But um, I always, I told my managers I wanted to focus on Mozart because that is the foundation. Imagine you're building uh, a skyscraper. That foundation has to be tremendously strong. And, and you can't start at the mezzanine level. Um, so, you know, you have to start with a solid foundation. So you're working completely on, I mean, you're taking advice from people around you, but you're yeah. working completely on instinct. Well, no, I take a lot of advice from, 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 uh, from uh, I have to say, my maternal unit, she, because she was a singer. And when I was little, uh, I remember in particular when I was eight, she studied with Eleanor Stever. So many of you must know who, who she was. And if you don't know, please YouTube her. I think she's the greatest American soprano that's ever lived. So I was eight, and my mother studied with her. And when I didn't have a babysitter to take care of me, I went to the lessons. And I remembered Miss Steber with her turbans, and just fascinating. And uh, I would make drawings for her. Uh, just as a, as a thank you. And there was this beautiful bond. And I didn't realize I was paying attention because I was very bored. And then when my mother and I got home, my mother the next day started working on it. It was Liu, as a matter of fact. And she was working on, on uh, the aria. And I went up to her and I said, that's not what Miss Steber told you to do. <laughs> <laughs> so... God bless her, she was teaching me. She was teaching me, and I think, had it not been for my mother studying with her at that time, that link would have never occurred. So what was your mother's fach? What? Soprano, but I, she has more metal in her sound than I do. I think mine is darker, um, just more like if I, I think there's drapery around mine, and hers was So, I mean, she did Salome, even in 2001, that was the last thing she did on stage. She started out as Musetta, and she did Butterfly, she did Tosca, she, she did Zalome, and, and many, many other roles. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a huge, huge voice, and, fast, and still beautiful. And she's, she'd kill me if I said her age, but I'm so proud of her, because not a wrinkle, and she's never had anything done. And she's 77. And beautiful, and she opens her mouth to sing, and it is impeccable. And and I always say that's what I want to to be able to do is to first of all reach older age with health, and to still sing, um, just for pleasure, uh, with a healthy voice. So. Uh, so so did did she in a way in, encourage you, discourage you? She let me be. Yeah. But I fell in love with music so early on. She tells me that. Um, so she, she, when she was pregnant with me, I'm her only child, she uh, was 
uh, cast to, to sing the foray requiem as a soprano soloist. But at the time, the performance would take place during her eighth month of pregnancy. She didn't know what she would feel like. And I'll tell you, once the baby drops, you can sing anything because there's no longer pressure on your lungs. And ah, you can go for days. But she didn't know that. So she said, just to be on the safe side, I'll sing in the chorus. And I, and, you know, I, I hear that and I think that's wise, but I wouldn't have, uh-uh. I would have said, I'm singing that soloist part. So she said that in one movement in particular where the percussion was very steady and quite prominent, that I started to move to the rhythm. Isn't that fascinating? So, so she said, this child will be a dancer for sure. <laughs> And I, I took a little of that. But, and my first love was percussion, I, I have to say. And then she discouraged me from that. But it's because she didn't want us to get thrown out of our apartment building. <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm very proud of that. At Juilliard, I was known as the singer with the best sense of rhythm. And I thought, well, it's because it's my first love. And I remember uh, she was getting her doctorate, as was my father at Florida State University. She in music, my father in psychology. And she would take me to her voice lessons, to rehearsals, and I was just mesmerized. I loved it. But I think it's because for me, it was like the air I, I breathed. During my entire formation as a fetus, that was part of my existence. So I owe her that, for sure, I owe her that. So it's always been um, existentially necessary to be involved with music. But because I'm so shy, I know I talk a lot. You don't believe I'm shy, I know. <laughs> and it's kind of gone away, yeah. But, but no, I, I, um, I thought it might be a hobby and not a profession, I think. But once I felt a sense of purpose with it, and as I emphasize a sense of service, if it can help someone, then that gives it meaning, and then I can kind of get out of my own way. Yeah, I mean, talk about to the manner born, you know, mm. a, a, a singing actress, you know, the, the daughter of a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychologist, psychologist and, and a musician. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, uh, the hand of fate is in I there know. somewhere. Yeah. Talk, talk about that piece of being of service. What, is, what does that mean to you as an artist? It means that you are, in the moment that you are in performance, and even in the moments of rehearsal, which are very gratifying, and, and you're working with people to create a story together. But the moment of performance, we are telling you a story. We are a vessel through which that story reaches you. We're also, and I mentioned a canvas before with composers giving us that, but we're also a canvas for you because you should be able to project yourself onto each character or the ones that you identify with the most. So there's a co-creative process there. There's a cathartic process there. It's, it can be very healing. It can be inspiring. It can be liberating. And when I return always, it's about the third time I've said it, that sense of purpose, I feel if I can help, if you can understand something about yourself or humanity in a deeper way because of that moment, then I feel I have provided my service to the best of my ability. But then in order to do that, I have to work technically on everything, make sure that it's all ironed out so that you don't have to worry, you know, you don't have to be gripping your seat as we're stressing out because there comes the high note, you know. Um, some days are harder than others. We might be tired or we might be going through things at home because we're all human, right? But, uh, and, and because of that, every performance is gonna be different. But in that moment, I have to be clear of me and therefore uh, the peace and for everyone gathered. Um, 
and and that that's what it really means to me. The older I get, that's what fascinates me most. Of course, music does, the acting part of it does, but that sort of liberation for everybody and and raising us up, all of us, this piece, whatever piece it is, is raising all of us. Um, that's important to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a you know there's a there's a little bit of a tension, of course, between that idea of humility in the face of the music or in, in the face of the audience against this kind of stereotypical notion of the diva. I mean, the, the roles that you've sung for us, you know, from, from the very start, have been, you know, the, the grandest diva roles in the canon. I mean, was, was, that, was that notion of the diva just a kind of historical uh, blip, or is there, is there something about you or something about the business that's changed in order for that relationship to the music to be so inverted? Because the, the soprano is meant to be the, the most remote, domineering um, mm-hmm. figure, not, not the person who is humbled before it and before mm-hmm. the audience. Mm-hmm. It's a... I, that, that's also a great question and very profound. Um, even at Juilliard, and I knew that it was quite a feat to get into Juilliard, so that was, that was a, a boost to my self-esteem. Um, not in an exaggerated way, but in the sense that, okay, I think I'm on the right path. But the concept of the diva was terrifying to me. And I'm not quite sure why yet. I don't understand it. My dad helped me a lot with it. I still, like I said, don't quite understand it. But it terrified me because I found her, the concept of, of her, to be very cold and uncaring and detached. And that's not what I feel when I listen to music, and that's not what I want to do. And when I was attending Juilliard, so I got in in um, 87, and I got a bachelor's, and then I re-auditioned for the master's, and I finished in 93, it was still very much that diva. And and some of my peers embraced that uh, with great passion, and I used to look at them with awe and think, wow, I'll never do that, I'll never get there, because I don't think that way. And then I thought, no, 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 I have something to say. And it might be on the quiet side. Um, hopefully there's enough volume, you know what I mean. You know, <laughs> In other words, not I don't have the jazz hands, so to speak, but, but I said, I'm gonna try it my way and let's see how it goes. And if I'm not hired and if I don't advance in competitions, then, then I'll go a different route. Uh, but let me just try it. And I think that, it's always been the case, but maybe by the time I started, because there was a shift, by the time I started in auditions, that's when the young artist programs really started to take off. And it became evident that you really needed that relationship with an opera company and the seal of the opera company to to launch you. Before that, singers had to go to Germany to get their experience and get fest contracts, which are fixed. So you're there for at least a year, several seasons, and you get tremendous um, exposure and opportunity. But I think that when I started, the, the paradigm shifted a bit, and I think people were more interested in seeing the honesty and seeing something a lot more vulnerable um, instead of that steel that we were all so used to seeing, which I found, again, terribly intimidating and, and not what I wanted to do with it. Well, I think that's actually what people respond to in your performances is that incredible sense of pathos and that sensitivity and the, the vulnerability. Which begs the question, so I, I just, uh, merely an hour ago, was having this very conversation with Placido. It's, it's extremely important to him, because to, he, even 150 roles in, he's still looking at new challenges to take on. Um, I know. 
It makes one feel very, very lazy. Um, <laughs> but there's this incredible calculus when you talk to him about this, and I'm sure you've had this, this conversation with him, is that it's, it's not, he, he's looking at it for musical value, but the more important thing for him is what is the nature of the character that he's um, being asked to portray, and whether that character is empathetic, um, whether the audience can sympathize with that, and whether therefore he can reasonably embody this person because he, you know, likes this person, mm -hmm. wants to be around this this character. Do you have the same calculus? Is it is it pure music, and then you can get there from an uh, interpretive point of view, from an acting point of view? Or, or do you have the same idea in your head? I, at first, earlier years, it was more about falling in love with the music uh, and then hoping to, to embody the character. And, and before Juilliard, I did one year at the Boston Conservatory as a musical theater major, which really means you're a drama major. And I thought about going the route of, of um, straight acting, but I would have missed music too much, so I, I changed that tune quickly. Um, but now I think I'm more interested in the characters. Back in 2009, I was offered to do it in 14, my first Carmen, and it was in Houston. And I thought, no way, that's no, 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 no. I found the character intimidating. I wasn't sure if I would have the, the sufficient uh, meat in the registers where she needs to, how can I say, the lower on the staff, the, the, the music is, I think the composer wanted to emphasize the exclamation of the text. The higher, of course, it's usually more about sound, not so much about text. And some, for example, Elisabetta Don Carlo, it's about beauty and vulnerability and just the phrasing it's, that's written in for you to do is, is stunning. So I needed to know that I had enough bite for, for Carmen. But as a character, I found her daunting. Because here's this introvert having to play this woman who doesn't try but makes everyone's head turn when she enters a room. And I thought, how do you do that? I mean, what if I end up being a person that gets lost in a crowd of two, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so then I thought, no, 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 you have, to, you have to embrace, I think, what we can all identify with, which is she, Carmen, is fierce truly fierce, in ways that I don't choose to, to um, exhibit, let's say, in public. But then I thought, what? I know, TMI, TMI, I know. But I, I remember reading, <laughs> is that okay? Am I in trouble? Okay. <laughs> so I remember, see, I'm blushing. I told you I don't have a poker face. I blush too easily. So I remember reading years ago in a newspaper that this woman, I think it was a, a I don't know if it was her own child or another child that was trapped underneath a car, pinched by a wheel. Everyone survived. But she had to lift the car enough for this person to get out. And it's a true story. And she did. And I thought, that's fierce. And I'd like to think that I would at least try that. Okay, I can see Carmen doing that. I could see myself trying to do that. Now I can embrace her. So then it, I had to come from a place of truth. She's just walking in a room not to make everyone's head turn, but she came in with a purpose. So I would have to say, what do I want in this room? So her focus is, is hyper-focus, and her wheels are constantly, constantly spinning, and it's about survival, constantly. So if you try to in, in imagine that, then you start to embody this animal this animal that has tremendous magnetism without even trying. So that's how I got to her. But going back to, to more specific of your question, now it's more about the character. And I have heard Placido say that he loves concerts 
because they're always the highlight that in, in a full performance everyone is waiting to hear. So you get those hit parades and concerts, but that the roles interest him more because he's fascinated by people. And he truly loves people, that's what I think. So he's drawn to that. And I also have to say that he's a great mentor, not just artistically, but in how to be as a person. He's so gracious and generous and always sensitive to making sure that everyone that's gathered is comfortable and feeling well. And, and that's always been a great example. And, and humble and at the same time giving his maximum without ever holding anything back from the audience. And that's, that's quite an example. So is there is there a, a secret, and you don't have to tell us, but uh, <laughs> what's on it? But is there a secret wish list of of particular mountains you want to climb in terms of repertory? Well, I I, I say uh, I've already done a lot of the roles that I dreamt of doing, and some that I never even thought I'd get to do. So already there, I feel so grateful. Um, there's some that got away that at this point I won't do. And the first is Gilda. I never got to sing her. Mm. And now it just wouldn't make any sense um, for me. Uh, Sophie in Rosen Cavalier, that one got away. That's a beauty. But Marshallman must be there somewhere, the, right? She's definitely there, yeah. definitely. And I've been thinking about that. I don't have it on, on the books, but that would be a nice one to, to, to attempt. I... I don't know that I would ever get to do this, but I, I would be fascinated to see if I could in a tiny, tiny theater with the orchestra way under the pit, <laughs> if that could ever happen, Elsa in, in Lohengrin. That would fascinate me because that would be, and I'll tell you why, not only do I love the piece, but the challenge would be enormous. And in that way, I am wired just like my father. We love a challenge. And if I can just say a little bit about my dad. He's still with us, not, not in good health, but this is a man who at the age of 20 had to leave Cuba shortly after Castro took over. Although he wasn't uh, ever uh, inappropriate, it was clear that he did not support the Castro regime. So he had to leave in a very creative way. He thought that regime would last three months. It didn't. <laughs> and so he ended up studying. To continue his studies, he went to Madrid. Uh, Jesuit uh, priests took him in, and he had a scholarship, got tired of that, went to Canada, got tired of that, went to the Dominican Republic, didn't like it, ended up going to Puerto Rico once he realized that Castro wasn't going anywhere. And a lot of his relatives arrived there as well. He had a master's in math. He became an electrical engineer. Um, married my mom, had me, one of the original coders for IBM. I know, right? And then when I was born, he was still 27, he said, no, this isn't my, my thing. Uh, I think I need to be a psychologist because throughout my life, everyone's always come to me for advice when they need to talk about something and I've always helped them. So he left this incredible position with IBM, uh, started from scratch, got a doctorate in, in psychology, worked as a psychologist for two years. That wasn't enough. He approached Rollo May. If you haven't read, I heard a, oh wow, wow. I actually got to hear Rollo May speak uh, live. And Rollo May took him on to, uh, for my father to undergo his psychoanalytic training and became a psychoanalyst mentored by Rollo May and was twice approached by the FBI to be a profiler. Uh, 
and twice said no, because I was already born. That was the reason, because he thought I would always be vulnerable uh, in some way. And my mother was a scientist and later got her doctorate in music. So education was always emphasized at home. Thank you for letting me talk about them a no, little no, bit. No, but uh, yeah, education, studying, reading, uh, doing your due diligence, and following your passion. Uh, sometimes we can't do that in our professions, but you have to find something, anything, that makes you feel very passionate about doing it. Uh, good about yourself doing it, and it, it just changes your entire life and the course of your life. Well, so, which begs the question, so, so you're the parent to a relatively young son. How, how did those lessons of parenting from your parents, but also the fact that you have an unusual job, affect the process of raising him, and is he a budding musician himself? He is, uh, I think, very talented musically. Uh, has a beautiful singing voice. He wants to be a rapper. <laughs> now, I, I, I mean, I said a hip hop, a hip to the hip of a hip hip hop. I mean, that's the Sugar Hill Gang. Oh, I know the whole thing by heart. And so he, and, and I know Hamilton by heart. He probably doesn't know that by heart, though. No, the Sugar Hill Gang. he, he. Yeah. Too young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He well, no, I play it for him. for him. It is, and I and I say, son, I was like 12, 13, and I had two turntables at home, and I was I wanted to be a DJ for about six months, you know. And God bless my mother for letting me, you know, do all of that. Anyway, so I played the Sugar Hill Gang for him, and and there are no bad words in the Sugar Hill Gang, and he found that to not be exciting enough. So this is where it gets a little tricky. Um, he is very good at piano, uh, beautiful hand formation, um, reluctantly started taking piano lessons, but now enjoys it. And I, I emphasize to him, you are naturally musical, naturally gifted. At least give it a, a chance. You, you owe that to yourself. You don't have to follow it. His strengths lie more in math, uh, fascination with vocabulary, reading, social studies. To be honest, he just started middle school, so there's a bit of adjustment, and he's struggling on a couple of subjects, but I, I know he'll get there. Uh, very deep and sensitive, aware child. Um, since he was a, a little toddler, the way he observed things, I thought, and I still think he thinks like an engineer and like a philosopher. So I have my hands full. And also, the truth is, I feel uh, fraught with guilt when I'm not there with him. And the last six months have been very busy for me, and I'm very grateful for that. And he travels a lot to where I am if he can't be away from school. But now, and we were just talking about this, he's at a point where he's really demanding that I be with him more, and I need to respect that. So the creativity begins again, and the first five years of his life, he traveled with me all the time. And I had a nanny, and I could pull him out of pre-K. But now it's not fair. So with the school support, I might be able to pull him out a little bit. Um, I think that he understands what I do. And even once, and I don't think it was a fair question to ask him, so I in part regret it, but this shows you the depth of Lucas. He had just turned 10, and we share the same birthday. I know. And a friend of mine had asked him if he wanted to be an opera singer. And he said no, and she said why? Well, because I don't want to be away from my family and my children. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then, but then, later, the following day, I said, based on that, he didn't know I knew this information, I said, Lucas, I haven't asked you this in a while, so I want to just have a, a, 
an honest conversation. Would you like me, how do you feel? No, I started by saying, how do you feel still at this point with mom's job and the fact that I travel? And he looks at me, he's like, it's all right, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, would you like me to travel less? And he looked at me and he said, mom, that is God's gift to you. You can't slow down. You just can't because that's your gift. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> this child is amazing. But again, my asking him, that was not fair. Because if, if he had said, yes, I want you to slow down, and I slowed down, this very intelligent child would later realize what I sacrificed. And he would be consumed by guilt. So it's a very delicate very, very delicate situation, which a lot of us in this field have with our children. Open communication. There is a village of family that is always with Lucas, um, but mom is mom. So yeah, I think yeah. that's always the most extraordinary thing, because you, you say making a sacrifice by sharing your gift with the world that requires sacrifice of being on the road and yeah. having... Um, these kind of very intense relationships um, with your colleagues that last mm -hmm. a brief time, yep. which is actually kind of in a way goes back to my earlier question, which is the the potential benefits of having these these long relationships with individual theaters. Well, and they the, become your family. Yeah. They do become your family on, on the road. And Ramon, I met, Vargas, who sings Don Carlo, I met when I was a young artist in Houston Grand Opera back in 1994. And then we've sung many times, and, and many of those times in the Vienna Staatsoper. This is someone that every time I see him, it's it's such a lovely experience to work with him and, and to see him and hear him. And I've described to him that when he sings, it's as though the Virgin Mary is smiling upon you. Because it's such a beautiful, beautiful sound. And what can I tell you about Placido? I mean, to be on the same stage with Placido is always, you, you, you definitely grow. And you're definitely floating in a way uh, for, for quite a while after because of the concentration of greatness at that level and at that consistency, if, if that makes sense. That's, that's amazing. And also with Ferruccio Furlaneto, now we have Sasha Vinogradov also uh, doing uh, The King, but Furlaneto, my, my goodness, I mean... It's, I, I forget to speak when I see him. Literally, he's the only one that makes me mute. When, when, I, when I see him, it's, it, there's just uh, this intimidating factor without trying. He's just that big of a personality. With all that greatness concentrated on one stage, does that make you raise your game? Does it? Yeah. You have to. I always, always asked for this in my prayers, and I think that I always had it growing into or growing up in the field, uh, working with people that have been doing it a lot longer than, than me. Um, I always had to search deeply inside and say, okay, I thought I brought everything. I don't think I brought everything. Let me look again. It's like a woman's handbag. You know, <laughs> let me keep looking. I'm sure I'm going to find it if I keep looking. It's got to be in there somewhere. So that's, that's what happens when you've got all that greatness on stage. You have to raise your game because they're giving you everything. And I think it would be a disrespect to not try to give them everything as well. So you've, you've certainly, I'm sure, been in situations in which you've dealt with the opposite, right? You've... Uh, you've been in a, a situation that is either the the production is uncomfortable for you or you've had too little rehearsal or there are other singers that are not bringing their A game or you're at war with the conductor in some way. What what is What are your coping mechanisms when you're in an, uh, a situation like... I'm assuming not all of this happened in one performance, but... Sometimes <laughs> it does happen in one performance. And then... 
because I, I, I don't bring out my temper. There have been only about three times in my entire life where the it's like this lion comes out, and I call it channeling my dad and his rage. Very, no, it's only righteous indignation, honestly. When, whenever something's just, and it, it, only once with, with a conductor, and he ended up apologizing, because he, he poked the bear to the point where, oh, I rhymed, I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it. Um, sometimes it happens where everything's concentrated and, and tries your patience, and then I say 10, 10, 10. What is this gonna matter in 10 hours? I'll, I will have calmed down. What is it gonna matter in 10 days? Not much. What is it gonna matter in 10 months? I won't even remember this. But I have to be professional because what I bring is not just the preparedness for, for the job at hand, but it is an attitude that is going to affect everybody. And now more than ever, I'm the oldest one, not in this production, I'm so happy, but I'm usually the oldest one in the cast. And I have to set an example. And if I see someone who's really young coming in with a bit of a chip on the shoulder, I know that it's their coping mechanism. And then when they see I don't bring that, then they, they slowly but surely they leave it at the door, which I think is fantastic. And then we can get the work done. But yeah, you just, it's like anything. If also, if, if people are, are picking a war with you, I know it sounds a little cliche, but just be nice because maybe they're going through a really hard time. I had one female colleague who was very, very difficult to work with and constantly trying to call the attention in not the most constructive way. I would equate it, I don't, doesn't sound nice to say, but I would equate it with a middle schooler who's having some problems at home and is acting out. <laughs> and then I later learned that that's what was happening. And then I thought, well, no wonder. She needed an outlet. And so every time I just try to, to be nice and a couple of times we had to remind her that hers was not the title character, it was a guy. He was title character, just, you know, like regroup. <laughs> so, uh, and maybe this is, uh, we only have time for one more question, but I think we're, we're increasingly in an era in which I think opera aficionados have a little bit of anxiety about theatrical values and musical values kind of parting ways, mm. or, that, or that somehow uh, the theatrical interpretation of a canonical work on stage is not a accurate or honest representation of, of the music that is at the foundation of that work. What happens to you when you're in a rehearsal room for something that you don't believe that you can reasonably, that you're doing a disservice somehow to the piece to do it in the way in which the director, often directing from a libretto book, um, mm -hmm. from a CD as opposed to mm -hmm. uh, actually reading the score, um, and I don't say that without, with prejudice, I'm just saying that the, 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 these two things do seem to be diverging a little bit. Um, how do you cope with that as an artist who has to actually uh, represent these ideas on stage? Mm. So that that's tough, but you have to at least try. You you have to try, and, and sometimes it really makes no sense, and I know that the director, even with a translation, doesn't have a word for, or doesn't have an accurate word for word translation, is doing from a poetic translation, and I know that they don't know what, what it is. So then I'll say, well, what is it that you want in this particular moment? Because I'm not quite understanding. Let's look at it again, because 
I'm the kind that it has to come from inside, and I really have to believe it and digest it. Not like a paper doll where you put the paper dress on top. It, it, it has to come from inside. So I will try, because hopefully they've done their research and they have their idea. If I've tried it and I really don't feel it and I've slept on it and I still can't do it, then I will privately go to them and I'll say, I need to look at this from another way. Can I show you the idea that I have? But I don't ever say no and leave it at that. You have to bring a suggestion to the table because it, it is a living art. But this is a worry that, that we all have. Um, and I've, I did a production, I didn't realize how traumatic it was gonna be of Rusalka. Yeah. You know, the one in, in born, no, no, that yeah. one is fine. The Munich one, oh, have, oh, yeah. do you know the, about? Yes, well, I've not seen it. I've seen the photographs of you in the fish tank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was not the most traumatic part. I mean, it was traumatic. It was, it was, uh, there was an Austrian true story that came out in the news that happened over 20 years ago where a father or stepfather had sequestered the six-year-old girl in a basement, left her there for 20 years. She had multiple children by him. And this was the concept that the stage director wanted to, oh, yeah. So imagine when your favorite opera and your favorite character has to do that and you have three days of staging to put it on. I think had I arrived at the original, at the onset of the production period, I probably would have said I'm very sorry. I think I would have left. I know Ramon has had to leave productions in the past. I've never left. I've never left a production. But I was able to wrap my brain around it. And I know we have to go, but this is, this is important because it's relevant to, to having to wrap your, your brain around it. Playing a character that's noble and lovely and, and we all want to be around, like Placido was saying, of, of the sympathetic characters, is wonderful. But sometimes put yourself in the, in the place of someone who has to play Iago in Otello. That is probably evil incarnate right there. But then you have to think, why is this person so evil? What happened? We don't know why, but you have to go back and in your mind fill in the blanks to justify the behavior. So you are really warping your brain to have it make sense as the only form of survival for that character. Because if you don't love the character or you don't embrace the production, you will hold it in judgment and the audience will never get the full story. So you have to have tremendous empathy, compassion, the ability to warp without doing harm to yourself, emotionally or spiritually, but you have to see a different way of telling the story. And then we're also servicing in the sense that we're teaching you, bend a little, shift your perspective. And as Marian Williamson says, I love her, she's a beautiful motivational speaker, when a shift in your perspective has occurred, a miracle has happened. So if I can do it with that production, good Lord, I think everybody in this room can do it. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank, uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I want to thank Ana Maria for the conversation. I want to thank her for um, all of the incredible performances that thank she has graced us with. Thank and thank you. you all for your support in helping make this happen uh, and enjoy your dinner. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera.
If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.